As we have said so frequently, Paul begins this movement into the content of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That is the theme of the entire book of Romans. It is the thing that is foundational to understanding the gospel. And it took him until to, to, he was into chapter, the end, towards the end of chapter 3, to begin to develop that part of it. He spent a couple of chapters pointing out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that uh, the only way we can be right with God is that apart from the law righteousness that we receive by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the phrase we put with this is he's talking about justification by faith. And we have been noting that in chapter 4, because he raises this question, he said, does this, kind of, does this kind of set off the law, push it away, make it of no value? He says, no, in fact, it establishes the law. And he's using chapter 4 to teach us of its continuity historically with the law. That's the Old Testament covenant. And he's teaching us theologically its congruity with what was taught in the law so that we're understanding that from back here all the way through here, we have it's the same gospel that's being proclaimed. It's just uh, being developed through the centuries. So what we have, uh, what we have noted is that justification by faith for things he's using chapter 4 to teach us justification by faith it establishes the law he says it establishes the law by first glorifying God who alone is worthy of glory and that was verses 1 to 4 by the way we have kind of uh, in a semi-humorous way described that it's like crossing the plains of Illinois that nothing changes. It seems like we just keep hitting on this theme of justification by faith. And I'd like to suggest that the first four verses is kind of like going from Rockford down to Bloomington. Some of you perhaps have been on that stretch. David, in your traveling days, you ever go from Rockford to Bloomington? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, there you are. All right, so the next thing that he points out in verses 5 to 8 is the blessing uh, to sinners as David describes, still in accord with the law. And that's like moving from Bloomington over to Champaign-Urbana, home of the fighting Illini. Now you can cheer. None of you are that thrilled about the fighting Illini. I can see that. But here's where it gets exciting. The third point that he makes is in verses 9 to 12. That's our text for today. And here he is showing that justification by faith establishes the law by revealing the inclusivity of God's redemptive work. And now we've gone from Rockford to Bloomington to Champaign, but now we're going to go down to Effingham, Illinois. Anybody know what? Hits you when you get to Effingham, Illinois? What hits you in Effingham, Illinois, Alyssa? The big cross. You don't miss it, do you? This thing is huge. It's got to be 10 to 15 stories high, I would suggest. You cannot miss it. And as you've been going along this, these boring plains, it really does bless your spirit to make that curve and all of a sudden see that and, and it just reminds you that you're part of something that is huge. 
the big cross in Effingham. And that's where we're going to get to today. So hold on. We're going to cover a lot of material. Not everything will show up on a screen, so some of it you just have to listen to. Or if you want to grab a Bible in the pew, if you don't have one on your phone or one that you've carried in with you. Um, But we're going to cover a lot of stuff. So we're into the third of four arguments Paul makes that says the justification by faith establishes the Old Testament law. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't abuse it in any way. Now, the previous section that we're in, we've touched on it, is that the blessing that sinners uh, receive is the same as described by David. That's how it's in accord with the Old Testament. And that section in verses uh, 7 and 4 to 8 said, ends on, blessed are those, it's a quote from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Rather than holding sin to his account, he holds righteousness in that man's place because of what God has done. We always got to remember that. All right, so he calls them blessed in, uh, in Psalm chapter 32. That's David writing. So now as we get to chapter or verse 9, chapter 12, where we are at verse 9, verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4. As we get there today, Paul begins with, as he does so often, a question. Does this blessedness mentioned in 7 and 8, quoted from Psalm 32, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. We saw that a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that uh, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. That's what we, we, we declare. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised? or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, that seems like a lot of stuff. I know I'm trying to race through to get to the point where we can dig in. Now, with all of that as a background, we're going to dig in a little bit. Okay. You'll notice that he throws out three questions. Typical for him in the book of Romans is to lead the discussion by asking questions. Then he makes a historical observation. Then he he draws from that a theological implication. That's what he's doing. All that in these four verses. Amazing. What I want to note first is that Abraham, the one who he's talking about in these four verses, Abraham received the first of three major covenants identified in the Old Testament. The next person to receive a covenant was Moses. And then a third person to receive a major covenant was David. Now, when we're talking about these covenants, what exactly are we saying? Effectively, a good working definition is that a covenant is an agreement. It's a contract known in that day to be between two parties. You've all signed papers for contracts. You've bought homes. You've rented land. You've any number of things where you said, this is our contract. 
And the covenant outlines the responsibilities of each party, just like we're familiar with. So what we could say is we're thinking about three covenants, Abraham, Moses, David, that developed. First thing we can say is we can just count God to be the party of the first part in each of the covenants. That's God. When we come to the party of the second part in each of the covenants, that's going to vary because this actually unfolds over the course of over 800 years. And obviously no one of those individuals are going to live all that long. So the party of the second part varies. First it was Abraham. The next covenant was Moses. The third covenant was David. That makes simple sense, doesn't it? Party of the first part, party of the second part. What I want to do now is I want to work it backwards, if we could. I want to start with David, and then we're going to come back to Moses, and they're going to illuminate something for us so that we better understand what Paul is saying about Abraham. David, we have mentioned this covenant many times in the past. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, some of you who are more well-versed in your Bibles, you already have it going through your mind exactly what I'm going to say. And I understand that. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God enters into a covenant with David, so we call it the Davidic covenant. Let's set for ourselves what we, what we remember. It was at a time when the Ark of the Covenant had been for a couple of number of centuries now, about over four centuries, had been kept in a tent of meeting. It was there was no permanent building for it. It was designed so it could be picked up and moved. The whole building could be picked up and moved. That's what was going on at that point. But David, who had a heart for the Lord, wanted to build a permanent dwelling place for the ark, something that was solid, no longer this tent which had which had its own uh, particular issues with it. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan and he says, Nathan, I want to do this. And Nathan's initial thought was, go right ahead. That's a great idea. And then God speaks to Nathan and says, uh, not so fast there, Mr. Nathan the prophet. He's not going to build it. But I appreciate the fact that he wants to do something for me. His heart is right with me. He's not going to build it. The reason he's not going to build it is he's a man of blood. He's a man of war. And I think God's intention behind that is simply this. God does not want a man of war to build the permanent place which will become the temple for the ark so that we don't confuse that the blood shed in war is not to be mixed with the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. They're two entirely different things. And man would mix it all up and pretty soon he'd be using all sorts of horrible ways of justifying killing in the name of God. And God's keeping that secret, see, uh, separate. But here's what Nathan then brings, the revelation to David, who's asked to build a house for the Lord. The Lord tells you, this is the last part of verse 11, that, and this won't show up, that He will make you a house. You asked to make a house for him, he's going to make it for you. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, you will, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So God is speaking metaphorically that he's going to make this house for David. And what that house is, he's going to give him a dynasty and that dynasty is going to continue that the right to the throne in Israel will always be to him and to his offspring until Jesus Christ comes. Because Jesus Christ is going to be the king in Israel. The awaited king. And so he now is going to be of the house and the lineage of David. That phrase sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds familiar because every year at Christmas, we read the Christmas story, and we hear about the census that was taken, and Mary and Joseph had to get up, leave out of Galilee, go all the way down to Bethlehem. Why? Because they were of the house and lineage of David. So that promise made to David that, his, that he, God will build a house for him continued right on to the coming of Christ, a magnificent promise given to him. And so it was necessary that Christ was of the Davidic line. Now, you'll notice in there, here's the point. I'm going to read it for you again. I will be his father. He shall be my son. That's these offspring of David for each one as they go along. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of man and with the blows of of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Do you notice in there that God is setting up that there's responsibility for each of these people? Party, the first part, God, who's going to build this house, never going to take it from him. But if the party, the second part, walks in iniquity, walks in rebellion to God, the party, the first part, God, is going to bring pressure upon him to get him to repent. So that's that covenant. And that's going to stay in place until the coming of Messiah. You see both parts? That's the important thing. Let's back up. Let's back up in about four centuries earlier. And uh, we are at the time of Moses. You guys are familiar with Moses. He's leading the people out of Egypt. They haven't gotten to the promised land yet. They're heading that direction, but before they get there, Moses has some instructions he's going to review with them. He's going to give them, in the book of Deuteronomy, instructions on how they are to behave when they get into the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we have what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. This contract, this agreement, which we won't have time to look at here because that's not our point, uh, only to identify that here's the party of the first part, party of the second part, and at the end, the party of the second part, the people of Israel, they all agree we're going to do exactly what this contract requires of us. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28 with the Mosaic covenant given through Moses. Now it shall come to pass, 28.1, if you're looking in a Bible, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all His commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. So he says, your task, 
Your, your, your responsibility as my people is to walk with me, to walk in holiness, and observe the things that I'm telling you to do. And when you do, I will bring prosperity to you that will set you apart above all the nations. It will be evident that my hand is upon you. That's what you're to do. But there's another part to this particular covenant. He says down in verse 15, he goes, the same thing, only the opposite. But it shall come to pass if they do not obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Instead of prosperity, they're going to experience poverty. And he basically, the, the whole list of, of areas where he was going to give them prosperity if they obeyed the Lord, now he's going to say you're going to get poverty in those very same areas if you disobey the Lord. Part of the first part is God. His responsibility is he's going to bless the people who live in obedience to him. He will curse the people if they move towards disobedience to him. Party of the second part is the nation of Israel. They are to walk in obedience to the Lord. They will get blessed for it. They will receive prosperity. And if they walk away from it, then they're going to find poverty is theirs. That's the Mosaic covenant. And it played itself out uh, very simply, in that by the time we get to Jesus' day, remember when on the day of the triumphal entry, he said, if you, Jerusalem, if you, yes, you had only known the day of your visitation, if you would recognized who I am. You didn't. You haven't. And now your house is left to you desolate. And he predicts the raising of Jerusalem. And in, and in uh, 70 A.D., that happened. They weren't walking in, in obedience to the Lord. And 70 A.D., Titus came through and uh, raised the city. And God spread them out across the face of the earth. But God said there's to be a kingdom established forever under David. Remember? And he also will see said it to Abraham. And in, on May 14, 1948, most, one of the most incredible events of history took place. The Jews, having been spread around the globe, literally for millennia now, are reconstituted as a nation in Israel. Keep your eye on Israel. Keep your eye on Jerusalem. God's doing something there. So that was the Mosaic Covenant. Blessings and curses. Now we back up a little further and we come to the Abrahamic Covenant. This is where we want to be. In each case, you saw who the parties were and you saw what each's responsibility was, right? We got that. That was the point. Because now I'm going to show you a contrast. Now I'm going to show you something different. When we got to Genesis chapter 15, we've touched on this, so I'm not going to uh, uh, try and redo a lot of it. You can go back and listen if you would like. God had already promised in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham he's going to make a great nation, going to give him, uh, he, was going to, he was going to be the one through whom Messiah would ultimately come, and um, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. But by the time you get around to Genesis 15, some time has passed, and, and Abram is asking like, Lord, what gives here? You made this incredible promise to me that all of this was going to happen, and right now the only person that, that can possibly be the, the one who inherits what I have 
is Eliezer of Damascus. He's a guy who works in my, our, our home. He's hired help to me. What is this? And uh, that would have been within their culture. I have, a, I have an uncle who became a millionaire based on that same kind of thing. Uh, true story. His, uh, my uncle Frank, you know, my, well, I remember one professor saying, everybody's got a rich uncle. My rich uncle, Uncle Frank, made his riches this way. He worked for two bachelor guys for Pentecost Seafoods in Chicago. And they, these two bachelor guys had no children, being bachelors, and they were both alcoholics. And he would go, when they had gotten themselves in a bad way, he was the one who would go get them out of wherever they were, get them home, put them to bed, these kinds of things, while he was working for them in their company. As each died, they willed their part of the company to him. You, if you've got a company, if you've got any kind of land at all in downtown Chicago, you can imagine just the value of the real estate alone, let alone the business that was on that. And he became a millionaire, multimillionaire, because he worked for these two guys who willed their thing, uh, their part of the company to him. And this is what Abram is saying, all I got is to leave my stuff to somebody else. He's not even my own bloodline. What gives here? So he's raising that question in chapter 15. Said, so look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one born in your house shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside. Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be, yours that are your bloodline. So shall your descendants be. And here's where we get the whole concept that we're talking about. Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. This is what Paul is saying. This whole idea of justification by faith, being de declared righteous because we believe God, it goes right back here to Abram. And then, we talked about this two weeks ago, God had Abram take some animals. The bigger ones he split in two. The smaller ones he just separate, killed and separated out. And these animals were separated like this. And in the middle of the night, God made his presence known through a smoking oven. And he walked. He, he made this manifestation of his presence move among those pieces. And as we said a couple weeks ago, here's the point. That's a covenant. Entering into a covenant. And when, when two people were entering into a covenant, what would they do? They would walk through it together through these split pieces of the animals and, and the imagery is this. To whatever we're agreeing in this covenant, may if I do not keep my part of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. All right. So that's the significance of what God did there. And then we read... At the end of that, on the same day when he'd walked through, when he'd gone through these, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. He goes on to say more things. But here's the point the phrase, on the same day, he made that covenant with Abram. But this is the interesting part. What have we been saying all along? Party of the first part, party of the second part. Who's the party of the first part in this covenant? God. Who's the party of the second part at this point? There is none. 
Abram didn't walk between those pieces of meat. He didn't... He didn't go with that smoking oven. He watched it happen. God alone committed Himself to Abram. And Abram has not agreed to anything here. God is single-handedly entering that covenant on Abram's behalf. And, and uh, it's all uh, on the, His own character as to what will happen. Interesting, isn't it? We get to Genesis 16 because, because Abraham has been promised that there would be heirs from his own bloodline and they don't see it happening the way that they would like it to. His wife, Sarah, says, you know what? <laughs> Apparently, we're supposed to do something different here. And in faith, she sends her, her handmaid into Abram so he can father a child through her. And you know the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And yes, it, it happened, and that was again within their culture. And uh, so it, the text says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So that's chapter 16. 15, the split pieces of the, uh, uh, of the animals, God walks through them alone. 16, Abraham, Abram and Sarai, they put together this plan, baby born by, uh, by Hagar. And at that time, we're told Abram is 86 years old. Then we come to Genesis chapter 17. And this is where we need to be for today. So that's why I tried to move quickly through that other stuff. Genesis chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old. How old was he when Ishmael was born? 86. Some time has passed, hasn't it? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you. Two parties in this covenant. And will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Well, it sounds like the same kinds of things that we heard all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, and nothing has happened yet. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan in an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Ah, we now have the party of the first part, God, the party of the second part, Abraham and his descendants after him through all generations. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
So now God is engaging Abraham. And he is giving the sign of the covenant that the males are to be circumcised. What's the point of that? I believe the point of that is very simply this. The procreative organ is marked to make them all aware they are part of a holy nation. That God has a claim upon their lives and upon their nation. And they are to conduct themselves accordingly. And then jumping down from there, verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Notice this phrase, that very same day. Abraham was, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. If you will recall back in Genesis 15 after they went through the split animals Moses wrote on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So that's a covenant and now we're told here's this other covenant. I believe it's all part of the same covenant. It's just it was delayed in its complete expression. The very same day Abraham was circumcised in his son Ishmael. Now you got both parts of this party happening, working together. The important thing is the first time when they split the animals and God alone walked through them and Abraham believed him, it was then that God saw that Abraham believed him and accounted to him for righteousness. It'd be some 15, 16, maybe 17 years later before circumcision, the sign of the covenant, would be given. Interesting. So let's come back to our text for today. Three questions, a historical observation, and then the theological implication. And that's what's going to get us to the point, friends. What's the point? In all of us, I've given you a lot. I know that. Thank you for your patience. Paul wrote this. Does this blessedness that he had just referenced in verses 7 and 8, does this blessedness come upon the circumcised only, meaning the descendants of Abraham, or upon the uncircumcised also, meaning everybody else? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. That's what the text said in Genesis 15, 6. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, you know the answer to that now because we've just gone through it. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who, are not on, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And see, what he, see what he's saying? Real simple. Declared righteous, Genesis 15. That's, that's there. 15, 16, 17 years later, he receives the sign of the covenant that, into which he's entered with God that is based upon the righteousness that he's had. 
But that, that declaration of righteousness happened before he was circumcised. Years before. God separated them out a significant amount of time. And I think quite possibly in order for when the fullness of the gospel is known through what Jesus Christ has done, this doesn't get confused in there because if you look at Acts chapter 15, you know they're wrestling with this question of circumcision. What do we need to do with this? And Paul is saying that the righteousness came prior to the question of circumcision. There was a point in that. He received the sign of circumcision, verse 11, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might, that's a purpose statement, to this purpose, to this end, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. You see, God was looking down the centuries as to what the development of the gospel was going to be. And he made it clear at the beginning of his work with the Jewish nation that the imputation of righteousness, justification by faith, that this was not going to be contingent on circumcision. He made it clear it's faith and faith alone. Later, he entered into the covenant of circumcision and identified those who were the descendants of Abraham. That's great. That's wonderful. But he had already laid down the premises that those who are outside of the nation of Abraham can also be justified by faith because circumcision is not the necessity. So he says that that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And Abraham could be the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, that is his descendants, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had had while still uncircumcised. The same thing applies to them. They will be justified by faith. They will be considered the true descendants of Abraham if they have that same righteousness of believing God. They're not, the descendant, they're not considered the true descendants of Abraham just because there was a cutting of the flesh and in the New Testament that has developed further. They're considered the descendants of Abraham because they walk in the same faith that Abraham had. Yes, they happen to receive that, that um, physical descendancy, but the true spiritual descendants of Abraham, all, whether having been physically circumcised or not, all enter into fellowship, his fellowship by believing God and God accounts it to him for righteousness. So the historical observation, I've mentioned this a few times, Abraham believed God accounted, and was accounted righteous 14 years before receiving the sign of circumcision. The theological implication that Paul draws out, God was intending to communicate that Abraham was to be the father of the uncircumcised and the circumcised alike. That's how it remains continuous and congruous with the Old Testament law. That it is not in conflict. God's development of His gospel and His redemptive work, it's not self-contradictory at some point. And this is what Paul is pointing out. This third time of, he mentions that it does not, it does not abolish the law, but instead establishes it. So, 
The just shall live by faith. There's another place where Paul touches on that. And I just want to reference it quickly. There's another place, and you guys are probably more familiar with this than you are with where we've been. You're familiar with the, the Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. Through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's in every little Bible tract for salvation that you'll ever find. That it's about, it's, that's a declaration in Ephesians of justification by faith, not works. Earlier, Paul described that what he's talking about, a justification which is apart from the law, righteousness. Same thing. It's the same topic. Different words, just a way of saying it. Same thing. And that's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Now notice where we're at immediately after that in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Notice this. Paul just, deter, just laid out for us justification by faith. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by, by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands, there's the discussion, right? That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were at that place, you were among the lost Gentiles, he's telling the, he's telling the Ephesians. He had no connection to the promises of God that came through Abraham and Moses and David and all of these covenants and all of that law. You had nothing to do with any of that. But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, you are part of the blessings and you are no longer distant. You've been brought near. Even though they are uncircumcised, Abraham made a way for that. Abraham became the example of that. You don't have to be circumcised to become part of the God's promised kingdom. Verse 14, For He Himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made both one, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He has made them both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. God intended that the descendants, the circumcised descendants of Abraham and the uncircumcised rest of the world, that they would be brought together in one, having made peace through the blood of Christ. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Alyssa will tell you, when you're in boring farmland in Illinois and you come to Effingham and that cross jumps out at you, it blesses you. It is there. It makes a statement to everybody who understands its significance that that is our hope. You cannot miss it. And it's a rich blessing. And what Paul is saying, it is through the cross that this magnificent work is being done that the circumcised children of Abraham and the uncircumcised children of Abraham are all brought together because of what Christ has done when we receive Him, put our faith in Him, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
this battle between, you know, well, you're not circumcised. Yeah, well, you guys are proud, whatever, wherever they went. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Both have peace preached to them. Those far off, those near. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And he's pointing out here that with that Mosaic Covenant, where they got the law, it became this thing that separated them. We have the law. We follow the law. We're people of the law. And you guys are not. You're not there. You're not in. You're not part of what God's doing. It became this divisive thing. And Paul is saying, guess what? That enmity. Because we were given the law. And they were given the law. Between us, the circumcised, and you, the uncircumcised, has been torn down. Because Christ has died for us all. We all have access by one Spirit to the Father. And then he finishes up, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. They were strangers and foreigners. We all were. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles. Now we're talking New Testament doctrine. And prophets, the Old Testament, they're all part of the foundation as to what God is doing in this redemptive work. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. I believe that was mentioned in one of the hymns we sang. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So notice the magnificent truth now that comes as we embrace justification by faith. The people who are descendants of Abraham physically, they'd been given the laws and the promises and all of that stuff. That was theirs. But it wasn't precluding the rest of people who by faith could enter into all those blessings. They could be declared righteous as well. That was the point he's making about Abraham, those who are far off have been made one with the Father by the Spirit, were brought together. The arguments about the law don't matter anymore because of what Christ has accomplished. And not only have we been brought together that we might be in the fellowship with the Father, but the Father now through His Spirit takes up residence in our midst and we become the temple where God seeks to reside. We become the place where, from which He is known. Jew, Gentile alike, does not matter. Do you understand, friends? We so often think in terms of the Gospel, we think of what Christ has done, we sing about it as if, man, that cross, it's for me. It's for me. And I'm praising God this morning because it's for me. Could I ask us to think, and this takes a little reflection, but could I ask us to think this morning that there's another magnificent aspect of the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. Remember, that's where we've repeated it over and over and over. Here's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's what he's bringing out here. That, see if we can, we can wrap our arms around this. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you praise Him for that and you sing songs about Him because of that, that's wonderful. But do you realize that 
that you are linked in unity through what Christ has done, you've been put into the same household of faith, that you are part of the same body of Christ that the person behind you is in. Do you realize you might not even know them? You maybe haven't made, uh, learned their name yet. Or person on the other side of the worship center. You are united together in Christ. This is the work that God is doing. But think about it this way. You also are united. You know when those, when those Operation Christmas Child boxes go out? And these little kids receive these boxes. These little kids probably, in many cases at least, um, as Naomi Zach described at one time, have nothing. Places where some of these get to. They have nothing. And probably dirty and dusty and no change of clothes. And um, this is how they live. You're every bit as much united with them in Christ. They are your, that boy or that little girl who gets that box. They are your brother or your sister in Christ if they have responded by faith. Can you begin to get the magnificence of what God is doing? And I'd like to just take it one step further. Because history, throughout history, most people live a, have lived a peasant life. You guys, we're, we're so used to living very well. We live better than, what would you estimate? I would estimate 98% of the world, of all the world of all time, has ever lived. We're, we live better than them. We have it so good. Most people have lived in poverty. Now imagine the person in poverty from what makes me think of being in Vienna. And they have churches there that were built back in 1200. And probably peasants who built, put the stones in. Moved all this manual labor. Do you realize if their faith was in Jesus Christ, we're just as much united with them as well? We are all part of that same household of faith. And one day, we are going to give glory to God as we gather together. People of every kindred, nation, and tongue, and every time period, we are going to gather together to glorify God for this magnificent work that He has done. And I just want that to mean one thing to us today. I had a bit of a disruption to my life this week. Yeah, I don't like it when the, when the sump pumps get taken out and I, I get off my rhythm. I don't like that. And you're facing some things sometimes that are much bigger than that. And sometimes difficult that we come in to offer praise to God. It's like, my life isn't very good right now. I don't know that I want to offer praise to God. We maybe don't even come. We may say, no, I don't have it in me to praise God. And I am saying, I'm suggesting if we get this, you always have a reason to praise God. It might not be about your life and what's happening right now or my life and what's happening right now. I have a reason to praise God every single day and every single moment of every day because I serve a God who is bringing together people from all around the world and from every time period to gather us together that we might be united to be a place where He will be pleased to dwell. That's how big His work is. And when we understand His work is that big, I've always got a reason to praise Him. I always do, even when my life is difficult. And we've also always got a reason to be engaged in service, friends. Always got a reason to say, Lord, what do you want to do with my life today? Is there something new for the future, for the next months ahead? What do you want to do, Lord? Because He wants to take us and use us in this big, huge, unbelievably incomprehensible Salvation work that he is playing out day by day by day. Our God is always worthy of praise. Father, thank you 
That as you reveal your gospel to us, it becomes so clear your intention. The very purpose that you had in Abraham in not completing his covenant until it was 15, 16 years perhaps after you first declared him righteous. So that he could become the father to those who are of the circumcision and those who are not. So he could become the father of all those who put their faith in you and will be justified by faith. That we would believe you and it's counted for righteousness. Thank you, Father, for that magnificent promise that our salvation isn't dependent upon what we do and what the good we can account for. It is simply upon trusting you that what you've said you will accomplish in your gospel you will, Lord, and motivate us out of that to praise you, to walk with you, to serve you, Father, to see our lives in new ways because we are a part of this magnificent, huge, unbelievable work that you are doing. We'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name.